The views expressed in this interview are those of the individuals and do not reflect the official policy or position of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy, or the Naval Postgraduate School. Welcome to the Trident Room, brewer of stout conversation, unfiltered and on tap. On today's episode, the Trident Room host, James Riley, sits down with Lieutenant Ryan Newmeyer. CO did some amazing stuff. Out of that, then I go to Italy. And 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 so in Italy, what is your position there? So um, for the longest time, uh, the Coast Guard, um, up until I think it was a little bit before sequestration, um, but we would, we would send a cutter from Atlantic area over to... Um, Europe and Africa every every summer. Africa Partnership Station. It was like kind of the cool thing. Like you wanted to be on the AP the Africa Partnership Station cutter because you got to do something other than drugs, migrants, or fish, um, which is the mainstay of what we do, especially in the early early two thousands up until you know the rollout of the Western Hemisphere strategy. But um, so if you were able to break that cycle and go over to to Africa Partnership Station, you you were like, that was the cutter you would want to get on. Um, and so as a result, the Coast Guard identified that we needed to have two officers in Italy, which is where the U.S. Navy's Sixth Fleet is. Um, and, and the Navy's Sixth Fleet is responsible for maritime operations supporting um, the European commander and the Africa, Africa commander. Um, in UCOM and Africom. And so there, there are two positions there. There's the O5 that is the direct liaison um, with Sixth Fleet, and then there's the lieutenant position, which uh, is also a coveted position, which is what I had. When I was there, it was in, six, it was in Naples. It's now moved to Rota. But my job was to work directly to with the tactical commander. Of Sixth Fleet. Of uh, the task force that the cutter would then integrate into, the surface, co- surface coordinator. Okay. Um, CTF 65, um, destroyer squadron 60. So that was where I was. Um, and so like the job kind of morphed over time. So now you're just kind of advising both the six fleet commander and the task force commander, the, the O six on, um, kind of coast guard operations and how like we do things. Capabilities like, because we still sent, we couldn't, we didn't send cutters over, but we would still send teams to do various, um, to work certain exercises because there's exercises around the African continent, three big ones: the Express Series, um, Phoenix, and then Phoenix Express in the north, um, Colas Express in the east, and then Obengani Express in the west, part, west part of Africa. Uh, and so we send Coast Guard uh, law enforcement detachments there to kind of advise and assist, like the execution of the exercises and, and stuff like that. Um, and then for a long time, we did Operation Junction Rain, which was a real-life kind of operation where we would send, once again, our law enforcement detachments to go um, either bo- embark on U.S. ships or um, at sometimes even our African partners on their ships to do advise and assist boardings on, generally speaking, fishing vessels. Uh, to help them exert maritime sovereignty over their near coastals. Um, and so I was responsible advising 
the the Commodore on that and facilitating the teams entering and exiting um, the continent and kind of the whole planning cycle with that, which was an awesome experience. Kind of once again, I I fit right in because I had already done my previous tour with the Navy, so I understood. I mean, I could speak the language. I didn't have to go to like you know a language school to learn a whole new language of how like the Navy speaks and all of their acronyms. I I already knew it. Got it. Um, Got it. And so like I spent two years in Italy, um, traveling uh, Europe and Africa for both work and fun. You know, I got to see a lot of really cool parts of Africa that I never would have seen otherwise. Um, I mean, I and then I, I planned for the first cutter to come back over, and you know, at that point it was five or six years, um, which was also another cool experience um, to to shepherd that project through. And we've now since sent a couple other cutters over, so following a similar path. So that that's pretty cool, um, but it, it it was an eye opening experience traveling all over Africa for sure. Um, and seeing how different, how vast the continent came out of that. Mm-hmm. Where after that? Then I had to do my time in Washington, um, so I ha- I got called to headquarters, um, and there I worked in uh, the Global Motor Coordination Center, which is my favorite because it's an acronym within an acronym. So it. Re- Global Motor Coordination Center is the Global Maritime Operational Threat Response Coordination Center. And it's this plan, um, the the motor plan, which grew out of one of the Coast Guard's most infamous failures. Um, From 1970, the Seamus Kodeka case, um, which led uh, to the firing and um, ending of several Coast Guard officers' careers, when a Lithuanian, who at the time we did not know had legitimate claims to U.S. nationality, um, attempted to defect on board a Coast Guard cutter while anchored off the coast of Martha's Vineyard. Um, and I do not know about this case. Really? No. Um, so the Kadurka case, it's, you, you learned about it in, uh, I think... MLA, but just didn't. Yeah, there's there's so much stuff going on at the academy that you're just like, wait, not relevant to my major. Data dump, like. Yeah, it, uh, my brain's a sieve. It's gone. <laughs> um, so no, so that you you'll have to give me like a quick summary of of this case, and and we can go from there. So the in 1970, um, height of the Cold War, uh, the the Soviet fishing fleet, and this is also predates the UN Conventional Law of the Sea. So we were having um, a, a meeting between the Coast Guard and the Soviets regarding fishing in the North Atlantic. And the weather was really bad offshore, so the agreement was made to move inshore, inside U.S. territorial waters, and they just anchored off the coast of Martha's Vineyard. There was a Lithuanian seaman on board, uh, named Seaman Seamus Kodurkas. Um And he uh, threw a note over to the ship saying that he wanted to defect to the United States and eventually jumped on board the Coast Guard cutter. And so now we have a problem. 
and we have somebody, a Soviet, trying to defect um, on board a U.S. flagship inside U.S. waters, and we don't know how to do it. And, of course, this is, you know, Friday afternoon, uh, and the admiral at the time in charge of, uh, at that point, I think it was District 2, um, but he was out on some medical thing. So it was, it was his chief of staff who was taking the call, trying to call down to Washington to, to get people online to figure out what are we going to do? Because the captain of a ship does not have the authority, and nor should he um, have the authority to grant asylum or any sort of handling that defection. That is, it is now definitely CO 101. Like, you don't have the authority to do that. You pick up the phone and you call somebody else because you, you give them safe refuge, but you don't make those decisions. And so the, the district calls down uh, to headquarters um, and says, well, what are we going to do about this? And there's no, there was no interagency process to get unified agreement within the Beltway. And so they try to call a couple of people at the State Department. Nobody was answering the phone. Then eventually they got somebody and they said, no, we don't want to, we don't, we can't deal with this. And so the word comes down from, from Washington to send them back. And the captain, uh, Ralph Eustace was like, I don't really want to do it, but he was told to send them back. So be sure enough, because the, the KGB on board these ships wanted him back. We don't, they definitely didn't want anybody defecting. They said, all right. The, the cutter said, all right, you guys can come on board and get him and bring him back. So, of course, there's this ensuing problem where they're running around the ship. Eventually, they catch him on board the, the 210, which is not a big ship. There's not a lot of places to hide. Um, beat him on board the cutter and then drag him back to the, the Lithuanian fishing boat. I remember this now. Yeah. yeah. I remember the, the whole chasing the guy yes. around the cutter and then, yeah, yeah. physically – like, yeah, basically yeah. beating him up Not on board great. a U.S. flag vessel and then, yeah, dragging him yes. to the, yes. Of course, this gets onto the front page of the New York Times. Because then it comes out that on his mother's side, he has a claim, I believe it's to birthright citizenship, because there was a tie that he could claim American American citizenship. So so now it's like they beat up American citizen, more yes, or less. More or less, yeah. Yeah. So it gets equally bad. Um, and, and it, like all regulations are paved, unfortunately, with blood at some point, this radically changed how the U.S. government makes decisions in, inside the Beltway. So after that, a couple years later, they issue what's called uh, – Presidential Directive 27, the PD, PD 27 process, which talks about how the U.S. government responds to incidences not relating to the military. And this was this was all sorts of incidents, not just maritime incidents, but just all sorts of incidents. And it, you know, may, required um, departments to maintain a 24-7 watch center. I mean, it, it was radical in in the, I think it was, uh, I can't remember what year it was, but it was in like the mid-70s when this came out, um, 
radically changed how it happened and like required phone calls and all this other stuff to get interagency coordination because at the time uh there was no like i said there was no process to deal with these instances that didn't have a military nexus and, and so you know they they had you had a call and everybody all of the major stakeholders from the various departments got on a call and said all right yes this is the official position of the government we are going to do this. There are going to be no surprises at this point. We've all of the various departments have had their issues aired to solve the problem. So the office you were working in, it was you you were working in the Coast Guard arm of this joint office or No. No. So so over time it, it, it evolved. In post 9-11, they pulled the maritime piece out of PD twenty seven. Okay. And created the motor plant which is the Maritime Operational Threat Response, which is just PD-27, but only for maritime jobs. Got it. And there are certain triggers that like force the motor plan's activation. And that, we deal with all of the maritime stuff. So kind of some of the stuff that we do a lot with the motor plan are like counter-narcotics missions and drug issues. Those are like the bread and butter of the motor plan. But there are other triggers that we, we've had to deal, especially with, with COVID, um, because... You know, if we're trying to board, let's take a, a, a generic drug case. Um, so Coast Guard has the authority and the jurisdiction to enforce U.S. laws. We have that inherent into our, our organization. However, um, under international law, a foreign flag vessel, we don't have the authority to exert jurisdiction over that. that it's, it's been more or less, that's, that's, that's territory. Of yeah. the country yeah. that it's flagged. So we have, you know, international agreements, bilateral agreements between the United States and a lot of these countries on how we we can do shipwriter and get on board some of these boats. Um, but we still need to let state know because there's only one department in the entire organization, the entire U.S. government that's authorized and empowered to do foreign affairs, and that's the State Department. And so if we go on board a boat, a drug boat, that is flagged Costa Rican, for instance, um, and Costa Rica affirms that flag. We need to let Coast, we need to let the State Department know that we've done something. Got it. And if there are instances where we don't have an agreement, and there are, there are countries in the world that we do not have bilateral maritime agreements with, and um, the, and this is part of the cat and mouse game of drug smuggling. So so, you know, boats know that. And we'll raise that flag and, and know that that buys them time. Yeah. And, and we have ways around that. There are international law stuff. But uh, Costa Rica, where we have an agreement, it's pretty easy, pretty seamless. But let's say we have an African country, which we had, you know, a couple years ago. Um, the, what was it? Cameroon. Yeah. It was Cameroon. Um, and and we, we don't have an agreement with them. So we have to wait to get permission of Cameroon to board this vessel. And so I, now I remember this from maritime law. So we, we call this a snow or a statement of no objection. So a correct? statement of no objection is just Coast Guard. Just Coast it's Guard. It's just Coast Guard policy. Like the interagency, like you say SNO around like people from- Nobody state, else like it, knows about nobody that. Nobody else knows about it. Okay. It's just an internal Coast Guard policy. Got but it. let's say we need to leverage our embassy in, um, in Cameroon to get the government to respond, well, we have to go through state 
and call up state and say, hey, we need you guys to get on the phone and and ask the post to weigh in on this. And that, and that was your office? Yeah, that was my office. Okay, okay. So, yeah. Uh, and is, so maybe it might be helpful. Uh, so let's say, you know, let's explain from a legal perspective, you know, or, or even just from a uh, backroom type perspective. What happens? So, so Coast Guard uh, Cutter is out on the high seas. Yep. Sees a drug boat. Yep. What happens? You know, from from that point where they see that boat and they're they're you know potentially able to board it. What what is happening on on you know in your office? How how is that information being transmitted to then get the legal permission to board that boat? So the actual Coast Guard cutters, they're coming up on uh, they'll they'll approach the vessel and ask like a bunch of different questions, like how many people are on board, what's their flag, what's their last port of call, what's their next port of call, basic questions um, un- under a legal construct called right of approach questioning, where we can query um, any ship to determine to verify flag kind of stuff. And they're, they're kind of, Coast Guard cutters are developing reasonable suspicion to see if we want to get on board this boat because we think they're doing something illegal or, or not. If we think they're doing something illegal, they'll pass it up to the upper echelons and then they'll, the upper echelons will either agree or disagree um, with the criterion, whether it meets the requirements to conduct a boarding. Um, and that's, and that, that's at the, the sort of that's either in Miami or or uh, in Alameda, depending on which side of the world you're on. Got it. Got it. Um, so sort of like land area, pack area. District seven, district eleven. District seven, district yeah. eleven. Got it. Because um, the they've been the districts have been empowered to do kind of some of this stuff. Okay. Um, and, and if we have a an a bilateral agreement with these countries, we'll go through the various processes, and each process each country has a different process of how we go about. So. From the district, then then they're contacting your office. Yes, it, it will. It goes to M, it goes to to MLE, the programmatic office. Okay. So the office of maritime law enforcement. If they need, if they don't have the authority already delegated down to them via bilateral agreement or what have you, which most of the time they do, but if there is some sort of weird request that falls outside of the norm, then they'll approach headquarters in Washington. Headquarters in Washington would come into my office and be like, hey, we want to get everybody around the phone and talk about it. Got it. And and we would gladly talk about it and, you know, um, figure out what the resolution is going to be and who needs to um, call it, contact who um, and make sure that everybody is on the same page. Because generally speaking, the desired national outcome is the successful prosecution of narcotics traffickers. That's generally speaking the desired national outcome. I guess desired international outcome, I would yes. say. Yes. Um and, and so that we will the government will work to get that done. And sometimes, you know, they're because justice has a piece of this, because they're the ones actually doing the prosecution. So DOJ has a piece, state has a piece, because we're dealing with foreign nationals and foreign relations. Um DHS obviously has a piece between you know, the fact that we have a Coast Guard cutter, but we also have to bring them into the country. So that's a 
you know, office, uh, customs and border protection issue of how we're bringing them into the country and then turning the custody over. So there's a lot of overlapping seams that have to be worked out. And generally speaking, it works out pretty well. Sometimes, sometimes there are hiccups. Sometimes there's you know trip chip wires. And that's and that's what your office is there that's for. That's what my office was there for. And it was it. awesome. Um, in, in much like the Coast Guard, there's a lot of desire in the international community because not very few countries have um, interagencies processes that work specifically in the maritime world like us. And so there's a lot of exporting of this concept, this idea, not necessarily the exact framework of the motor plan because the motor plan is very detailed to the U.S. government and the way we've structured our executive branch. But the idea of, all right, so you have this instance, you know, let's say counter-narcotics or cyber or what have you, human trafficking, contagion, what have you. Who do you need around this table to get the right authorities and capabilities to confront the problem. And that's what my office would do. We we definitely were not a call center. We actually did did stuff, but we we held a Rolodex of we knew through personal relationships and just time who we needed to call for various things. So like with COVID, for instance, at the very onset, when we were trying to figure out how to offload hundreds of thousands of you know, cruise ship passengers or, you know, there was a container ship with, you know, people that had influenza-like illnesses. You know, ILI was like the big catchword in Washington for the longest time. You're like, oh, God, there's three crew members with ILI. We we would call, like, you know, we'd call CDC and be like, who at the quarantine station do we need to have on to make sure that all of the concerns at the local port level are met, but also because that was so managed in Washington at that time, making sure that all of the stakeholders in Washington knew what was going on. Um, and, and so it was a it was a pretty interesting time. It was a very fluid time. I think we're still. I mean, we're, obviously, we're still in the pandemic, and the the after action report has yet to be written, but. There are going to be things that come out of that after action report that will definitely change the way we do policy, like policy inside the Beltway. Um, but it was cool to see kind of part of that and be in like a real life situation of that. Um, and once again, I, I've had a very a traditional career, but it's been pretty cool to see various aspects of how decisions are made uh, or, and how decisions are reached um, in that process. So it was cool. To, to see at the National Security Council level, like how that that organization operated and how, you know, you can have the same problem in two different departments. So, you know, for, for instance, migration issues, how the State Department and the Department of Homeland Security view the same problem in very different lenses. Both are equally valid, um, but they just view the problem inherently differently. And, and sometimes those viewpoints are competing and sometimes they're complementary. Um, but it, uh, it was a fascinating kind of lens viewpoint into the U.S. government operations. Very cool. Very cool. Ryan, uh, thanks a ton for coming out. Yeah, no, and this is fun. Thank you for talking to us about all this. And uh, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll 
hope to hear from you soon. Thanks for joining us in the Trident Room. For more information about today's guests and topics, please visit the show notes. The Trident Room podcast has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at tridentroompodcasthost at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu slash tridentroompodcast.